0: The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.
1: Today's scripture reading is Romans 2, 25-29, and that can be found on page 940 in the um, Bibles under the chairs. For circumcision, indeed, is a value if you obey the law But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This has been the reading of God's Word. You may be seated.
0: Well, uh, good morning. So that's what I'm supposed to preach on? Whoops. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But nothing quite says Happy New Year like circumcision, right? So... Somebody asked me when they found out that I was teaching on that passage if maybe this is some sort of hazing for the new guy that you got to preach on circumcision for your first sermons. I I had no answer for that. It might be. We'll see. But um, no, I I am um, really humbled to be able to stand here in front of you all and deliver God's Word. Um, It is a great privilege to be able to do this, and I am thankful to him and his grace in my life to bring me to a point where I, I even want to do something like this and where I am even able to do something like this. Um, I do think in preparation, um, I have seen maybe some of the reasons why God has appointed me to to deliver this message to you. I hope that that will come through today. Um, but to be frank, I will make a great mess of this if I rely only on my own uh, abilities. So let me just quickly turn to him in prayer uh, before we get started. So, Father, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for your grace in my life. I thank you for Doxa. I thank you for everyone that you brought here today. Uh, Thank you for Christmas, Lord. Thank you for the chance to remember the miracle of your son becoming a human being like one of us, God with us. Thank you for the new year, Lord, and thank you for this message. I pray that you would be working in people's hearts, open our hearts, open our ears to hear your voice this morning, Lord. I pray that you would be doing a work so that um, we could examine ourselves and that hearts would be circumcised this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today, we jump back into Romans after having done about four different weeks in the season. We're gonna jump right back in, but I, I know that it's been a while for, for those of us who are uh, regular attenders. And then maybe if you're new here, maybe you're just coming into this for the first time. So I'm gonna quickly recap where we have been taken through in Romans from Paul. Um, and so uh, just bear with me, real quick. Romans is a letter written by Paul while he is currently in Corinth to the church in Rome. And he has not been there to visit this church himself personally, but he does have plans to go there. Uh, He wants to go there not only to visit the church, but he wants to go there on his way to Spain to bring the gospel to people who have never heard it in Spain, and so part of his efforts is to maybe do a little bit of fundraising as well um, so that he can afford this journey over to Spain. Um, So he is introducing himself to a church that has never met him, and he's also uh, laying out the gospel systematically and theologically to a people who are new in the faith, who are trying to figure out what is this thing called the way, this this religion that calls Jesus God and Lord. And then also, how is that supposed to look like in the Christian life? Now, keep in mind, Rome at this time was one of the largest cities in the world. It was about a million people living there. And it was a big mix of different people, um, lots of different nationalities, but also it had a very large Jewish population, about 40,000 different people uh, were Jews living in Rome at that time. So we have a mix in this church, very likely, of Jews and Gentiles, Jews and, and, and people who had no background of the Jewish faith, trying to figure out what is this thing called Christianity? What is it supposed to look like? Uh, What what are the customs that we're supposed to practice, keep practicing the Jewish laws, and what are the ones that we can do away with? How does the Trinity work? Where where is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? How does that all work? And so Paul is going to try and unpack that all out throughout the, the letter of Romans for this church here in Rome. In chapter one, Paul makes the assertion that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. So from the get-go, Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto God for salvation for everyone who believes. In the second half of chapter 1, he also explains how all unrighteous people, and in the listener's mind, they're now thinking of all, pagans who live beyond the borders of the Roman Empire, all of those unrighteous people are under the wrath of God, and they have no excuse because His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So, all unbelievers, all unrighteous people, they're under the wrath of God, and they have no excuse before Him because they can see God through nature. They know that He exists. They also have a conscience that bears witness to this as well. Um, In chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the righteous judgment of God who rewards those who obey the truth and do good with eternal life, and then he gives uh, tribulation and distress to those who disobey the truth and do evil. Now, this is the case, he says, for both the Jew and the Greek because God shows no partiality in judgment. And now, this is a wake-up call especially for the Jews in this church Paul is making the assertion that they, just like those pagan Gentiles, just like those unrighteous people across the borders, they too are under the wrath of God because of their unrighteousness, because God shows no partiality. Now, the Jew here would have a big problem when they heard this, because they think they are part of the people of God, and therefore they have special exemption from this judgment. But Paul is saying, no, there is no exemption, there is no partiality. All of us, Jew and Gentile, are under the righteous judgment of God. For the remainder of chapter 2, Paul starts to attack these false notions that the Jews have Um, these defenses that they might have to try and maintain that they think they are safe from the wrath and the judgment of God. So, the first defense that the Jew would probably say in his case that Paul attacks, and we addressed this most recently in Romans, is that since they were in possession of the law of God, they would be safe from judgment. God gave them the law, and so that would mean in their, their minds that they're good. We have the law. Don't you see, Paul? God gave us the law. We're good. We're safe from judgment. That proves that we are God's people. We have the law. But Paul destroys that argument. He states that if you sin without being given the law, you're going to perish without the law. So that's true. Pagans, they weren't given the law, they're still going to perish without the law. However, those who sin with the law will be judged by that law that they were given. So just receiving the law does not make you exempt from God's judgment. In fact, that law that God gave you is going to be the very thing that God uses to judge you. If anything, you're in bigger trouble because you knew what you were not supposed to do because of that law that God gave you. And all of those who boast in the law but do the very thing that they proclaim, become hypocrites. And God says that they actually blaspheme his name amongst the nations because of their actions, because of their disobedience, even though they proclaim this law that they have received. So in today's passage, Paul is going to try and destroy this second and final line of defense that the Jew might have, circumcision. So why circumcision? Why is that their, the Jews' final battleground, their final defense for why they think they are safe from the gospel? Well, the practice of circumcision was even older than the law that was given to Moses. You see, circumcision was a practice that was given to Abram. In Genesis 17, God establishes a covenant with Abram. He then renames him to Abraham, And he promises to make him a father of many nations, a nation of nations and kings, and that the covenant will be between God and Abraham's offspring. So, this covenant is between God and Abraham's offspring, and God will give his offspring the land of Canaan, which is now present day Israel, for possession, and God will be their God, and they will be his people. That's the covenant. And then God commands Abraham and his offspring to keep this covenant. So they must obey this covenant, and then he commands every male among them to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant between them and God. I'm thankful that I was not a servant in Abraham's household during that time because it was not just the family members, it was the servants, and it's not just the babies, it was the adults too. Now, imagine the Jew pointing to this and saying, well, see here, Paul, way back in Genesis, th- like hundreds of years ago, Abraham, our father, the father of our nation, was given the practice of circumcision. He was circumcised. So am I. There's the proof. There's the proof, Paul. I am exempt from God's judgment. I have circumcision. So how can you say that we, the Jews, could possibly be under the wrath of God when we're circumcised, I mean, are you saying that God would create a people for himself and then just destroy it? Well, my circumcision says that you're wrong, Paul. We may have sinned, we may have failed, we may have fallen short of God's glory, but we're still God's people and he was never going to turn his back on his people. You see, the, the Jews of this time actually had an almost superstitious confidence in their circumcision. There is a, an old rabbinic teaching, an old teaching from the rabbis back then that said, a circumcised man will never descend to Gehenna. Basically saying, you know, your circumcision protects you from going to hell. So Paul is now really trying to attempt to help them see the error in this confidence. So now we're going to jump in the text here. I want you to take a a look at verse 25 in chapter 2, Romans. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law... Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Here we see Paul make the claim that circumcision in and of itself has no value. It has no intrinsic value in the eyes of God. So so what is its purpose then? If if there's no real value in the physical practice of, of cutting away the foreskin, well, what's the whole purpose of it? Well, let's remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis. This is a sign of the covenant. It did not make them God's people. It was simply an external sign of covenant membership. But that membership demanded obedience to God and His covenant. So, what Paul is saying here is that if you break the law that you have been given as, as part of this covenant, you are as good as uncircumcised because your, your sign that God has given you to, to show that you're a part of this covenant is, no, is meaningless, it means nothing if you break the law in regards to your covenant membership. So I want you to imagine uh, this this kind of allegory that I've come up with. Imagine that I sign up to join the Republican Party, all right? I've decided, I watched enough Fox News, I am ready to go, I'm on the Republican train, I've bought my Make America Great Again hat, I put up all the Vote for Trump signs in my yard, I have the big elephant uh, button on my shirt, and man, I am ready for election day. Let's go. But then, when election day rolls around, I vote straight Democrat, all the way down the card. So at that point, all the Republican signs, the Trump shirt, the Make America Great Again hat, is meaningless because I just voted all Democrat. doesn't matter what signs I had on myself to, to show everybody that I was Republican, my voting record proves I'm actually a Democrat. And so that's what Paul is trying to show here in the case with circumcision. Your sign, your physical sign is meaningless if your record, your record of breaking the law shows that you are not a part of the covenant of God. If a Jew breaks the law, he is out of the covenant regardless of what his circumcision may proclaim. So he uses the same principle to prove the inverse here in verse 26. Verse 26 says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So, Paul is using a hypothetical argument. He's not claiming that an uncircumcised person could possibly or ever has actually kept the law perfectly, but the point that Paul is trying to make here is that the law is the key. If one keeps the law, then regardless of whether they have been circumcised or not, God will find them acceptable in his sight. He will recognize that person as being a part of the covenant. What God wants is a holy people, not just a bunch of circumcised people. He wants a holy people because He is a holy God. And the ultimate sign of membership with a covenant of God was not circumcision, was not possession of the law, but it was the obedience which they both demand. Because what God really wants is a holy people. Paul takes it a step further in verse 27. Verse 27 says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Now, now this is perhaps maybe the most shocking line in all of this to the Jew at that time, that the very notion of that a Gentile could ever be in judgment over them was was just incredible to them. I mean, they are the the people of God. They are the ones who are given the law. They are the ones who have the ability to judge between the nations. And Paul is saying here, well, if you break the law and some Gentile has kept the law uh, perfectly, they actually are able to condemn you. So the very fact that they have been given the law and still break that makes them a target of condemnation from the hypothetical Gentile who obeys the law So, now we see in uh, verses 28 and 29, Paul getting to the, the principle that can be deduced from this line of arguments. So, let's take a quick look, verse 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul has established circumcision. It's not merely outward, not merely physical. It reflects an inward spiritual truth. So a Jew who only has the outward sign but lacks the inward spiritual meaning is is not actually a true Jew. What makes a person a true Jew is their inward state, this holiness, this relationship with God, this membership of the covenant, that's what makes a man a true Jew. It is not their physical circumcision. True circumcision, it's the same thing. True circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter or the law. It's an external sign of some inward grace. Now, this concept of true circumcision being inward is not a new thing to the Jewish people. In the Pentateuch, God complains of His people's uncircumcised hearts and He promises them that He will be the one to circumcise their hearts. If you can just um, bear with me, I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. Notice how the Lord must circumcise their hearts so they even have the ability to love God. And you're also going to see the same promise echoed in the prophet Ezekiel. So we we see these promises in the, the law, the Torah, and we also see them in the prophets. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So Paul is pointing to this circumcision of the heart that replaces the physical practice. It's an inward work of the Holy Spirit that the law could never affect. God gave them the physical practice of circumcision as a sign to help them physically identify as being a a covenant member. But it's not what got them into the covenant. It was not the real thing. The real circumcision was a work done within them by the Spirit. Paul ends this chapter by stating, A true Jew's praise is not from man, but from God. See, the Jews of this time boasted about their externals. They were really caught up in their image. Um, Maybe we could possibly relate. Uh, the, The Pharisees were highly respected for being perfect men. You remember Jesus' parable of the Pharisee who recited that loud prayer right in front of everybody, right next to that tax collector, saying, oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I'm good. Thank you so much, God. Um, but this is what the Lord has to say about people like that Pharisee. In Luke chapter 16, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It's very simple to impress men. I mean, you can, you can do it a number of ways. You can do it by serving. You can do it by... By giving to charity, you can do it by teaching, you can do it by preaching. It's really easy to impress men because human beings can only see the external. And, and in fact, that's, that's kind of what we're fixated on, right? Is the external. We have a, a whole platform called Facebook and Instagram that really just focuses on the external parts of our lives. We cannot see, however, the spirit of a person, the, the soul, the heart. But God does. And what makes a man a Jew, a true Jew, is not that he is born in the nation of Israel, it's not that he has been received, he has a physical circumcision. It's his relationship with God. It's not the circumcision, it's his heart. And this is something that concerns each one of us. Perhaps maybe up to now you're you're wondering: so, what is this whole argument that Paul's making with, with circumcised Jews? What does that have to do with me? But the the fact is that apart from the inward work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts, every one of us here, like Jews, are under the wrath of God. And that's a big deal. I mean, there there is no amount of outward signs or works that can substitute for what God demands from us, which is holiness. The author of Hebrews states that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And Jesus says the same thing in in his sermon, uh, sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Only the pure in heart, no one else. Your heart must be pure to see God. That's what Jesus, the Lord, says. It's not that you belong to the nation of Jews, it's not that you're circumcised, but it's the inner man of the heart, the holiness, the relationship to God that makes you his, that gives you the ability to enter into his kingdom and see him. So, this should concern us, right? If we we want to see God, if if we want to have eternal life, if we want to, to, to be with Him forever, we must be holy. We must be pure in heart. We must have this circumcision of the heart that Paul is referring to here. Jesus puts it another way when He talks with Nicodemus. In John chapter three, Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee at that time, approaches John. Sorry, approaches, approaches Jesus, and is asking Jesus about um, the new birth. You see, Jesus says to Nicodemus, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Nicodemus doesn't understand this. He he's really fixated on the external, on the physical. And he's thinking, well, I don't, I don't get it, Jesus. How can a person be born twice? How, can, you, can you go back into a womb and be born again? Is that possible? Like, I, I don't quite get this, Jesus. And, and Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so there it is in black and white. Well, actually, in red in my Bible. But, um, but if, you, if you want to see God, if you, if you want to get to heaven, you have to be born again. And there are many Christians who, who shirk or mock at this title, born-again Christian, right? I mean, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, you, you might have somebody say, oh, you're, you're one of those born-again Christians. Like, like, there's some other type of Christianity. There's other levels of Christianity. You have one Christianity, and then you have the born-again Christianity. Um, but we see here in the words of our Lord that there is no other Christianity There is no other Christian unless you have been born again by the Spirit. So this is not some graduation in the life of a believer where you you become a Christian believer and then later you become born again. This is the circumcision of the heart by the work of the Spirit that Paul refers to here in Romans. If you have not been born again by the Spirit, then your heart is a stone. It is dead. It is not awake or aware of spiritual things. It, 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 it does not care about spiritual things. It doesn't care about God. It's not even aware of God's voice. It can't hear God's voice. A dead, stony heart does not even care what he has to say. If you have not been born again, you're not a Christian. Regardless of what you call yourself, the only thing that matters to the Lord is the status of your heart. Have you been circumcised? Have you been born again? Have you had this work done to you by the Spirit. And this should give each one of us here a great pause. And I, my hope is kind of now many of us are taking a big collective gulp here because so often we, we do get caught up with the external signs. I know I do. I mean, we're really quite happy to talk about those. You know, I mean, how often we serve. Oh, I'm, you know, I, I serve on the, the setup team. I'm really good at doing that. Or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really faithful with tithing. I, I do a great job of that. But, uh, but our hearts, no, 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 let's not talk about that. That's a sensitive subject. That's a little too murky for me to talk about. That's not something that I want anyone to see. Sometimes not even our spouses. We don't want our spouses to see our own hearts. But unfortunately for us, God does see our hearts. God knows your heart actually better than you do. In fact, do we even know if our hearts are circumcised or not? I, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with, with Ray Comfort. He heads up this ministry called Living Waters based out of California. He does some work with Kirk Cameron, and he uh, makes a lot of actually really great videos that are mostly targeted towards skeptics of Christianity. Um, but he releases these YouTube videos of his street evangelism. He does a lot of evangelism on the streets, and, and he films it, and he, he asks people questions, gets them engaged, gets them talking. One question that he asks most people is if they're a Christian or not. And if they respond yes, he then will follow that up by saying, have you been born again, always? So he asks if you're a Christian, they say yes, have you been born again? And I'm stunned when I watch these videos at the amount of professing Christians that say no after he says that, or, or they say I don't know. I mean, it grieves me at how many people, how many Christians, especially in America, call themselves Christians but don't know about the most essential aspects of Christianity. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, which is the day of judgment that he's talking about, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And, and do some mighty works in your name? Notice that their objections here all revolve around these wonderful works that they have done, these external signs. I mean, some of these works that they have done are even supernatural in nature. They even know that Jesus is Lord, right? That's what they call him. Also notice that these people are repeating the word Lord. They're saying, Lord, Lord. It's not some casual debate that they're having with Jesus here. They are pleading, they are screaming in vain to the Lord of all creation who has finally come for judgment, and they are calling out to him, Lord, Lord, did I not do these things for you? And what is his response? Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are perhaps the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. They were certain they were going to heaven. They were so sure that when the Lord returned, they were going to be caught up with him. But then here he is, Jesus, he's returned, and there they are, and they're pleading. They have all the outward signs that they thought were necessary. They went to church. They're regular attenders even, members. They tithe Their home is decorated with driftwood signs that say words like grace and Jesus on them. (laughs) But they were not born again. They have not received this circumcision of the heart. And Jesus did not know them. Now this concerns me deeply because I actually was one of those people good part of my life, I was a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only, literally. My name is Christian. <laughs> I, um, I grew up in the church. I attended Sunday school. I uh, went pretty regularly to church, you know, about as average as anybody. I uh, went to the youth group. I, uh, when I was seven, actually, I, I made a decision. I, I walked down the aisle and I wanted Jesus to save me. I, I, I prayed the prayer and got baptized. At, at youth group, I even brought all, one day all my secular CDs and, and burned them, which I really didn't want to do. I loved that Nirvana CD, but that's what they said I had to do. I went to a, an Acquire the Fire conference and, and got a real emotional experience. But when I left home, when I went off to college, when I was finally able to, to be the king of my life, God very quickly left the picture. I kept telling myself that I, I should find a church, I, I should be reading my Bible more, but I actually never picked up my Bible the entire time I was in school. Never went to church, never really tried to find a church. Instead, during those years of school and thereafter, after I graduated, I was partying, I was chasing women, I was being an all-around idiot with my life, but I was still calling myself a Christian. If anyone cared to ask, I would tell them, yeah, no, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I actually uh, became involved with a girl at school. We dated for uh, seven years, and it was a full relationship. Eventually, my uh, sin and selfishness killed that relationship. We started to slowly drift apart. And then I remember, after I had betrayed, a, a very close friend of mine, and uh, ruined our relationship, I realized that I was actually not this good Christian guy that I was calling myself, that I was telling other people that I was. And I I decided that I actually needed to make a change. I needed to turn a a new leaf. And I I did know from my teaching and learning in Sunday school that that, uh, I would need God if that was ever gonna happen. So um, because my acting career was starting to take off in Charleston, I decided to move up to Chicago my girlfriend at that time was willing to move with me, but at that point I, I, I knew that I didn't really love her like I used to, my, my heart had grown cold, so thank God he gave me the maturity to tell her that if I could not commit to her, I would not ask her to move halfway across the country with me, thank God. So I decided to move alone, and in one mo- month before the move, I moved in with my folks while I looked for an apartment in Chicago, and it was one of the worst months of my life. <laughs> um... When I was back with my folks, I had been there since I was 18, basically, for an extended period of time, and we fought all the time. I mean, we believed very different things, and not just politics, although uh, my folks were staunch Republicans, and I was a devoted Obama follower, um, so that didn't help, but they could also see that my ideas of God and the Scripture had, at that time, become very warped. I mean, I was twisting Scripture now pretty regularly and in lockstep with the culture, And it was at that time that it became apparent to my folks that that I was not the same person who left before. And God actually started to press upon my mom to start praying for me, to pray for my salvation, which she thought was weird, that she kept getting this need, this sense, this urge to pray for my salvation because as far as she knew, I was already saved. And as a quick caveat, I do believe that in the, the testimony In the life of every believer, there is somebody who is praying for you. And so thank God for those people who are out there praying for us, because that's how God saves. He answers prayer. So the time with my parents was so bad that for the first time in, like, years, I actually started praying. I I was praying consistently for three days that God would help me find an apartment as soon as possible so I could get the heck out of there. And I, I mean, I was praying. I was desperate. And so, after three days, next thing I know, I find a, a listing on Craigslist, and it is in the actual neighborhood that I had fallen in love with when I visited Chicago before. And I, but I never thought I could afford that neighborhood, so I, I took a look at it, and sure enough, it was within my budget. Actually, it was a bargain. It was a, a steal. So I was like, oh, well, this, this can't be real. I called the number. It was legitimate. It was a real listing. Well, um, you know, she asked me, when, when can you come up here and take a look at it? Well, I was halfway across the country. I, I couldn't come up there. I was like, oh, well, here's the deal breaker. And she's like, no, that's okay. But, I, you know, I didn't have good credits. I mean, I, I, could, I had saved up some money. I could pay a double deposit. She was okay with that too. And like everything just fell in step. God answered that prayer so specifically, so amazingly that it, it became clear to me that not only was God real, but he actually cared about me. He cared about my life and what happens in it. So I was off to Chicago knowing that God had an interest in my life, and I promised myself that one of the first things that I would do when I got there was find a church near me, start attending. So I did. I googled Baptist churches in my neighborhood, found one, started going. But my life had not yet radically changed. I was still the same, still cursing like a sailor, I was smoking weed on a regular basis. I was, I was still living as the king of my own life, but at least I was going to church. And, and thank God that through Google, God uses Google too, through Google, he directed me to a Christ-exalting, gospel-declaring church. I was hearing the gospel on a regular basis. On Valentine's Day, I discovered that my ex-girlfriend had a date. Now, we were still talking at this point every day, like we had been for the last seven years. She had become, even though we weren't dating at that point, she had still was like my best friend, my, my idol, the God in my life, the person who I turned to talk to when I was in need, when I was hurting, when I, was, I just wanted to have somebody to talk to. Well, when I found that out, when I found out she had a date, it was over. My heart was broken, even though it made no sense because she was perfectly welcome to date whoever she wanted to. But I was, I was still heartbroken, so I didn't, didn't call her again. Got angry, hung up the phone, never talked to her again. A week bit went by and I realized I hadn't received a phone call or a text all week, not even from my mom. Sorry, mom. Um, but I realized at that moment how actually very much alone I was. And I actually slipped into depression. And I was on a, on, a, uh, on a path, and I think I know where the eventual end of that path was. I uh, actually, at one point, was so lonely. I was up in my bed and I just started crying. And I said to God, I started to talk to him. I didn't actually pray, or at least I didn't see it as praying. I was talking to God like I'm talking to you, like I would talk to a, a person. I said, God, look, I, I know that you're real. I know that Jesus is your son, but I just wish that I could hear you. I, I wish that I could be your friend. I wish you would be my friend. I did not realize what I was asking. I did not realize that at that moment that I was praying that prayer, I was an enemy of God. I was a rebel. My sin offended a holy God, and it eternally separated us. I had no clue of the cosmic scale of the request that I was making to God. God, can you who is holy be friends with me who is, who is a sinner, who is dirty, who, who is an enemy of yours, who, who every day lives my life with a big middle finger sticking up at him? I didn't know what I was asking, but God did. God actually knew before the foundations of the earth were formed that I would pray that prayer on that night. He knew that it would cost the life of his son to answer that prayer. Jesus knew that he would have to endure the pain of the cross. He would have to bear my shame and my guilt and my sin to be cut off from God so that God could be my friend. A few nights later, I had a very dramatic experience with God. Um, it was weird. My body began to tremble, like physically shake. I never experienced anything like that. I was not cold, felt like I was going to die. I felt terrible and sick, so I, I just went to bed, couldn't fall asleep, and I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, I am dying tonight. I am dying. This is how I die didn't know what was going on, and so it was in that moment that I realized if I died that night, I would have nothing to show God. I would have nothing to offer Him. My life had, up to that point, been a complete waste. I knew in that moment that if I died, I would go to hell and God would be perfectly just in sending me there. I would deserve to go there. And so I I just called out. The only thing that I could do is I trembled there in my bed. I just called out to him, please save me. I had nothing to offer him. I could not bargain with him. I just had to simply rely on his mercy and, and just please, God, save me. Please. And then somehow I knew he would do it. He would save me because that's who he is. He is a God who saves he is a God who answers the prayer that says, God save me. And I felt peace. I realized that, that, that something big was happening. So I, I got down on my knees and uh, amongst all the, the dirty laundry in my room and, and I, I started praying to God. And to this day, I actually have no clue one word that I uttered in that prayer. I can't remember it. I was praying, I know, a prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God. The next morning was Resurrection Sunday and I went to church. Before I went to church, I walked out of my room and my roommate was there in the living room taking a big hit off the bong. Um, And he was like, hey, he's getting ready to go to work. He's like, hey man, do you, you wanna hit this before you go to church? And it was almost like, yeah. Well, actually, I would have said yes before, but it was like in that moment, it was like a freeze frame. It's like in a movie, right? Everything slowed down. I knew I could say yes and everything that happened before would all just be a sham. It would be just a weird experience and I could just go on living the life the way I used to. Or I could say no. I could go to church and I could, I could decide that yes, God has saved me. He has worked in my life. I need to follow after him now. And that's what I did. I went to church. And that sermon was preached directly to me. There may have been other people in that sanctuary, but that sermon went right to my heart. I was in tears. I, um, I was just overwhelmed. The, the gospel finally took root in my heart. My life completely changed after that. I was, I was serving. I was devouring the Bible. I was being convicted of sin, like when I said the Lord's name in vain, which I had done a million times before. All of a sudden, I felt really dirty, like, ugh, how could I have said that? I was a new creation, And I wish I could say that it was all sunshine and rainbows after that, that I'd never sinned again, but we all know the truth. The Christian life is not easy, and it is riddled with sin. So as we enter into the new year, it's a perfect opportunity for new beginnings, for resolutions and life changes. Now, resolutions aren't a terrible thing. Um, Like, for instance, I made a resolution to read the Bible within a year, which was great. It was actually the longest time I'd ever actually stu- excuse me stuck to a Bible reading plan. The problem with resolutions is that it relies on resolve, which is why I ended that reading plan in June when I just gave up. However, now as we look forward to the new year, this is a perfect opportunity for each of us to examine ourselves as we are called to do in 1 Corinthians 11. Now maybe you're wondering, you're here today, and you're wondering how can I tell if my heart is circumcised? I will quickly. Give you four evidences of a circumcised heart. First of all, the Bible says that you can tell a tree by its fruit. So a true Christian should be bearing fruit, and not just good works, but the fruit of the Spirit, listed in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, not all perfectly, not all in equal measure, but these should start to be evidenced in the life of a true Christian, A true Christian, number two, believes that the Bible is the true word of God. In my experience, this is not something that needs to be taught. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. No one had to convince me after I was saved that the Bible was where I needed to turn for all my questions about God. Nobody had to convince me that it was true, even though just before I was saved, I was twisting it and questioning it every day. A true Christian Number three, desires the things of God. Before my heart was circumcised, I had to be forced to go to church. Afterwards, I wanted to go. Before, I didn't much care about Christians or being around them. Afterwards, I actually felt most comfortable being around other believers, even strangers, as long as they were believers. I felt comfortable around them. And then finally, number four, a true Christian wrestles with sin. So Tim Keller puts it like this, the sign of a circumcised heart is when you most, what you most ought to do and what you most want to do are the same thing. What you most want to do and what you most ought to do are actually now the same thing. John Newton, the hymn writer, puts it like this, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. A Christian still sins. He may even still return to previous sins. He may even backslide for an extended period of time. But God will continue to convict him. He will not let a Christian succeed in sin. The true Christian will still desire, even in a small, quiet voice, pleading to break free from the sin that plagues him. So now, for those of you in this room who who maybe do not experience these evidences, maybe You're wondering, um, if if my heart is not circumcised, how? How can my heart be circumcised? Well, as we see in the text, you can't do it. You cannot circumcise your heart. You can't resolve yourself to do it. I cannot circumcise your heart. Only God can circumcise your heart through the Spirit. And he does it through the power of the gospel. This whole sermon series is titled, The Gospel Changes Everything. And it does. It changes hearts. So the Bible says that you must repent, which means to turn away from your life with you as king and turn towards him as Lord. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe that before the foundations of the world were formed, God knew you and loved you. He knew your heart. He knows how sinful you are. He knew that you would be here today. He brought you here. He knew what a terrible sinner you would be even after today. And he wants you anyway. So much so, he loves you so much that he sent his only son Jesus to live the perfect life that the law demanded. A life that you could not live. And he died a perfect substitutionary death upon the cross to pay for the penalty of your sins. To be cut off from God so that you could be invited into his family. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead so that your heart could be raised to life forevermore. So finally in closing, I ask... Let's all consider, what are we relying upon to make us right before God? The Jews here in this text relied on their circumcision. Is there anything in our lives that we're relying upon instead of the only thing that can save us, Jesus? Are we relying on some sort of external circumcision? Maybe we're relying upon the fact that our parents are Christian, that we grew up in the church, that we're American, and America is a Christian nation. Are we relying upon our church attendance, our ability to tithe faithfully? Are we relying on, upon a decision that we made when we were younger, our baptism, the communion we take? Are we relying upon our knowledge of the way of salvation, our ability to, to recite Scripture, or speak Christianese? Are we relying upon our belief of the gospel? Now, let us remember that faith does not actually save us. It is Jesus Christ that saves us, and faith is the instrument in how it happens. So an an intellectual belief of the gospel is not something to rely on. Only Jesus can save you. Are we relying upon some theoretical assurance such as once saved, always saved? Actually, believe it or not, the Bible never says the words once saved, always saved. Now, I do believe that the Bible teaches this, Um, After all, a dead heart once brought back to life and united with Christ will never die again. But that said, if you just stop there and you're just like, yeah, once saved, always saved, and you don't actually look look for the the fruit of the Spirit, you don't see any results of a true Christian life, then you're actually heading towards the hypocrisy that the Jews show here with their reliance upon physical circumcision. So there's great value in all the things that I mentioned above. But none of these things can save you. They're all just physical signs of Christianity. Only Christ and he alone can save you from the wrath of God. If you want to know more about the salvation that he offers, please speak to me. Speak, speak to one of the elders, Randy. Uh, Jonathan, speak to your neighbor. Do not go out those doors. If you are not certain that you have received this circumcision, do not leave here today without talking to somebody. I greatly encourage you to do that. And also, if you are a Christian, if you know that you've had the working of the Holy Spirit upon your heart, remember how it happened. Remember your testimony. Remember His grace in your life. What an amazing God we have that He would save me and you. And if you are a Christian and you have not been baptized, I encourage you to do that. I mean, we're going to make it happen, even if we have to use the pool down the hall. Baptism, like circumcision, is an external evidence of an inward change. It is the opportunity for us as believers to explain, exclaim to the world what Jesus has done for us to show everyone that our dead heart has been crucified with Christ and our new hearts have been raised with him forevermore. Let's pray.